0: The Civil Rights documentary film series, Eyes on the Prize, premiered on public television in January 1987. I was in the ninth grade at the time. I knew about the Civil Rights Movement, but I didn't know much. Just what I had learned from family members. You see, in grade school, my teachers had barely broached the subject. Eyes on the Prize hooked me from the beginning, from the opening montage, the black and white Archival footage of the desegregation crisis in Little Rock, Arkansas, was spellbinding. The rendition of Go Tell It on a Mountain, sung by Fannie Lou Hamer, was soul-stirring. And the velvet voice of narrator Julian Bond radiated truth. I watched every episode, absorbing as much movement history as I could. I was especially taken by the activism of members of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. I was excited by Diane Nash's bravery during the Nashville sit-ins. I was moved by John Lewis's courage during the Freedom Rides. And I was inspired by Bob Moses's determination during Freedom Summer. Three years later, when I was a senior in high school, Eyes on the Prize 2 aired. The new series picked up where the first left off, with the transition to black power ushered in by SNCC activists in Lowndes County, Alabama. I had known about black power and I had known about the Black Panthers, but I hadn't known about their Alabama roots. I would not forget. In 1997, I was in my third year in graduate school, teaching in Atlanta and thinking about a dissertation topic. I wanted to explore youth activism and grassroots political organizing, but I didn't have a good angle of entry. Then I remembered the story of the Lowndes County Movement and the original Black Panther Party that I had first learned about in Eyes on the Prize. I actually had that episode on video cassette, and after watching it again, I knew I had found the story I wanted to tell. I spent the next dozen years researching and writing about the freedom struggle in Lowndes County, trying to do justice to the incredible work done by the young SNCC activists in the heart of Dixie and far beyond. Like the producers of Eyes on a Prize, I knew that their story needed to be told, that the story of SNCC, needed to be told to inspire people young and old who knew about the civil rights movement but needed to know a whole lot more i'm hassan kwame jeffries and this is teaching hard history we're a production of the southern poverty law center's learning for justice project formerly known as teaching tolerance To learn more about Learning for Justice and to meet our new director, visit us at learningforjustice.org. This season, we're offering a detailed look at how to teach the Black Freedom Struggle or the U.S. Civil Rights Movement. In each episode, we'll explore a different topic, walking you through historical concepts, raising questions for discussion, suggesting useful source material, and offering practical classroom exercises. The Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee was one of the most important national civil rights organizations of the 1960s, and the only one led by young people. Guided by the steady hand of veteran activist Ella Baker, SNCC members embraced her mantra that strong people don't need strong leaders. And they applied this understanding of grassroots organizing to their work with local people throughout the South. In this episode, SNCC veteran Cortland Cox shares organizing lessons that he learned on the front lines of the freedom struggle as a young organizer starting in the 1960s. Student activist Kaya Woodford talks about how studying the civil rights and black power movements shaped her own activism in the wake of George Floyd's murder. And historian Carlin Forner and archivist John B. Gartrell take us on a tour of the SNCC Digital Gateway an online portal for exploring civil rights history. I'm glad you could join us. It is truly a delight and an honor to welcome a veteran of the student nonviolent coordinating committee, the president of the SNCC Legacy Project, Cortland Cox. Brother Cortland, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Oh, thank you for inviting me.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Couldn't tell this story of SNCC without having you share your insights with us. So we're really excited to have you. You know, Cortland, I don't know if I ever told you this, but I remember first really becoming familiar with you and your involvement in SNCC when I was first doing my research on Alabama. But of course, you're not from Alabama. Uh, you're from Harlem, New York, Harlem, USA. So could you tell us a little bit about how a youngster growing up in Harlem in the 40s and 50s winds up in Alabama in the mid 1960s?
1: I was born in Harlem at Harlem Hospital. But actually, I'm the first of my family to be born in the United States. When I got to be four years old, my mother sent me back to Trinidad where my grandparents were. So I spent the next eight years from four to 12 in San Fernando, Trinidad. In 1952, I came back to Harlem and then moved to the Bronx. And then two years after I got back to the United States, you had Brown v. Board of Education, which ended segregation as the law of the land in a lot of ways. Right after that was the murder of Emmett Till, which impacted my consciousness. I was probably 14 years old at the time. The other thing that impacted me was watching the bus boycott on my black and white television, watching the people in Montgomery, Alabama, walk and carpool and beginning to listen to a 26-year-old Martin Luther King about the whole concept of Gandhian nonviolence. And then in 1957, beginning to see Ernie Green and a number of other people integrate Little Rock High School in Little Rock, Arkansas. And I remember talking to a number of people in the projects about what was going on, also listening to jazz and beginning to understand the world around me. So by the time I got to Howard University in 1960, I had probably six years of influence of all those things happening. I got to Howard in January, and the sit-ins began in February of 1960 in Greensboro, North Carolina. And it was a spark that really lit the imagination of a lot of students. So I was ready to join the things that were going on in Greensboro with the sit-ins. So in support, we would go picket Woolworths up here in Washington, D.C. And then the Freedom Rides started happening. And so in support of the Freedom Rides, we would go picket the White House. We would go picket Trailways. And then as a result of that, there was a group formed at Howard University as a campus group of SNCC called the Nonviolent Action Group. Stokely Carmichael was part of that group with us, Ed Brown and Hubert Brown, Rap Brown, Mary Lovelace, and a number of people were there at that time, a very strong group of people. And we did a lot of things in support of what was going on in the South. And then we looked around and saw that Washington itself was segregated. The route from Washington to New York, Route 40, was segregated. Segregation existed all around us in the Washington metropolitan area. So we just started a number of demonstrations that started trying to desegregate lunch counters, trying to end housing discrimination, trying to end all sorts of discrimination in banking and so forth here, and we continued that as a nonviolent action group. And then probably in 1962, I started going down to Mississippi and to southwest Georgia. So SNCC started out as a group of campus organizations at Morehouse, at Spelman, Howard University, Tuskegee, Hampton, in Mississippi at Tougaloo and so forth. But in 1962, because a number of people started going, and people like Bob Moses and Marion Barry and others had gone to Mississippi to try to deal with voter registration, SNCC eventually became an organization of organizers. And so after I left school at Howard University, I went first to work in Mississippi for the Freedom Summer, uh, and uh, and worked there in six nineteen sixty four, and after the uh, the Selma to Montgomery march, I decided you know when Stokely and other Frank Ralph Featherstone and others decided to go to Lowndes County, which was eighty percent black, and in fact uh, had no black people registered to vote, we decided to go change that situation that's when I decided 1965 to go to Alabama so that's it took a long time to get there but I eventually got to Alabama
0: (laughs) as we've been exploring in this podcast the civil rights movement beyond King so not only putting King in proper historical context uh but saying look the, the movement obviously was about more than King When when you do that, when you look beyond King and his coterie of uh, advisors and you incorporate organizations like SNCC's to a nonviolent coordinating committee, then the movement uh, begins to look different. Right. Uh, Could you could you just share with our listeners um, sort of SNCC's operating culture, what SNCC brought to the table that made the organization unique In the 1960s civil rights movement.
1: SNCC was very, very different because uh, we did not basically believe in a top down leadership. We had a view that everybody is a leader. Everybody can contribute. Everybody who had a problem had to work to solve it because they are the people who could make the decisions about when that problem is solved. And when I say the problem, I'm saying that, you know, if you had people in Mississippi who could not vote, while you could help them work through a number of issues and be supportive, the leadership had to come from there. We come out of an organizing tradition that says that the people who have the problem are the people who must be engaged to demand a solution, because that's the only way change will come, from the bottom up. You know, people mistake visibility with leadership. They reduce it down to a person. I think there is a prejudice to look at the great person history, as opposed to really understanding the movement that made history change. It's kind of the easy way out. It's a kind of laziness Mm. because, I mean, if you're going to understand what really determines change, it's not just a great person. There are a lot of factors. There are a lot of people. A A movement of history is really about how do you get the people to move and make the decisions about their lives. You know, King was 26 years old. I mean, clearly a brilliant person and clearly a person who was able to work uh, and bring the Gandhian concept of nonviolence to the United States, along with James Lawson and others. You've got to also understand that while King was visible, you know, he was riding a wave that started in 1945. I mean, when you really look, anybody who understands the civil rights movement, particularly starting in 1945, uh, you have to look to you know those uh, soldiers who fought in World War II and who came back, and a lot of them joined the NAACP, and they were they were the people who were they've helped. They were the generation before us they were the people like Medgar Evers and and and, and people like Ella Baker who was not in, in the war but i mean worked with the NAACP and then there were people like Bayard Rustin who was really with the uh with the peace movement there were people like Amzie Moore who was in Mississippi i mean there were so many people who were you know the the the, the generation that put you know Nixon and uh, A.D. Nixon and and people like that who were understood that things had to change that if we were going to fight they were going to ask be fight for freedom overseas that when they came back to the United States they were going to make a difference so they were the people who in fact really were the basis of the of of the civil rights movement mm.
0: Who were some of the uh, local people and veteran activists that you encountered? You already called a couple names, Ella Baker and Bayard Rustin, uh, who who you worked with and what were some of the things that they taught you?
1: The thing I like about people in the rural areas. I mean, I would say you had classes, not only individuals, but classes of people. And I would categorize them in three classes. The first young people who were in rebellion against the status quo, uh, and I would characterize them as really a high school and, and maybe beginning college. And then you had the people who were part of the middle class. You know the the you know whether they had a little farm, whether they had a little. Uh, Drug, I mean, a store. Whether they they were professionals or doctors and and teachers uh, or funeral directors, and a lot of them belonged to, on the download to the NAACP because carrying a carrying a NAACP card at that time was subversive. And then you had, I think, the dynamic you know group that nobody really knew until you started moving, like the Mr. Jacksons and. You know, Ms. Hamers and, and people like that, who once the movement uh was in force, they had great strength and they showed you how strong they were in terms of their support. And actually a number of them became leaders in, in that. I would also say people like Hollis Watkins and Charles uh Charles McLaurin and people like that. Those were some of the young people. The thing about the people in the in the country, they they're really their perceptions are really great and they're able to say things in a way that, you know, gets people to the point. I remember I was in, in Mississippi I was <laughs> I was traveling Mississippi so uh there are two things, two stories that uh, tell me interesting. So I was passing out leaflets in Mississippi and I passed out this leaflet to this woman, and I, she was reluctant to take it. And she said, uh, boy, the, the, the sheriff know you here? And I was kind of offhand and said, well, you know, I guess so he knows I'm here. And she said, boy, you ain't dead yet? <laughs> I mean, because she understood the danger that, you know, I was in. You know, and there was another time. Uh, in fact, I used this for the Lowndes County comic book I did later on, and a woman got up in a mass meeting and she said, "You know, us colored people been using our mouths to do two things: to eat and say yes, sir. It's time we said no. It's time we stand up." And that, you know, and and encapsulate the kind of strength that was necessary to move and and. And impressed me so much. I mean, I just used that and created a whole comic book and a whole idea about people saying no and standing up. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I I just I, I just impre- I was impressed by a lot of people, people whose names I don't even know. I mean, people. But when they were at the mass meeting or I'm having a conversation with them, their perceptions and their intelligence was so great. That, I mean, I just remember what they have said, you know, 50, 60 years after I have left the South.
0: Music was vital to the civil rights movement and continues to be critical to global freedom struggles today. In this installment of Movement Music historian Charles Hughes explores the role of music in grassroots organizing during the civil rights movement and the ways it connected activists and local communities. Here's Charles.
2: Music helps us understand the grassroots nature of the movement. The calls to community, the insistent pulse, and the celebrations of everyday life or as Sly would say, the everyday people, reveal the decentralized local structure of movement activity. The grassroots led SNCC was committed to the beloved community, and the music of the period reflects that feeling. The artists and the activists existed in conversation, whether Bob Dylan traveling with SNCC workers in Greenwood, Mississippi, or the SNCC freedom singers performing in concert halls throughout the world. One of SNCC's most important local people, Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer, drew an even more direct connection. She linked her visionary activism with her powerful singing as she became central to campaigns in Mississippi and beyond. Her voice soundtracked movement campaigns I remember throughout the 60s and early 70s.
3: Ten years ago today as I had walked about 10 or 12 feet out of Winona jail, Reverend James Belvey informed me that Medgar Evers had been shot in the back. It was six of us that had gotten out of jail in Winona. Some of us wasn't able to sit down But I keep saying, Burley, and keep asking God to hold my hand, Charlie Evers, because I know if he hold my hand, everything will be all right.
2: Mrs. Hamer was as gifted a singer as she was an orator and organizer. And she used the call and response practice of gospel to intensify the movement's message. Recorded at a mass meeting during the tumultuous Mississippi summer of 1963, Hamer's version of This Little Light of Mine resonates with that message. She tells her community, her collaborators, that each of them has the light of freedom to carry with them everywhere they go. Which, for SNCC workers in Mississippi in 1963, was usually someplace very dangerous. As Dr. Bernice Johnson Reagan, then of the SNCC Freedom Singers, later noted, rather than relying on a singular leader, This Little Light of Mine asserts the importance of each voice contributing and committing their particular talents to the cause. As Dr. Reagan and Mrs. Hamer both knew, music didn't just echo the movement's goals. It helped turn those goals into reality. But the soundtrack of the struggle could be heard beyond freedom songs and mass meetings. Ben E. King's 1962 Stand By Me, which he co-wrote with Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, bridged the elegance of early 60s pop with the deep yearning of the gospel standard that King based it on.
4: When the night has come and the land is dark
2: Stand By Me became a
4: classic,
2: a beloved anthem of personal devotion.
4: No, I won't be afraid, oh I won't be afraid, just as long as you stand, stand by me, so darling.
2: Scholar Craig Werner wrote, Listeners unaware of the violence facing the beloved community can hear the song as a plea for romantic connection. But if you imagine a lone SNCC organizer on a southern back road, the song grows even deeper. King's call to stand by him when the night has come and danger grows near." confirms not only the need for community support, but also the way that all the little lights of SNCC and the movement stood together in times of triumph and tragedy. Don't, don't oh, in the solo voices and the call-and-response choruses, oh, we can hear the movement happening. All we need to do is keep listening. Whenever you're in trouble, we'll
0: Fanny Lou Hamer said it true Fanny Lou Hamer sang it true Local people had a little light inside of them And SNCC helped them let it shine SNCC stood by local people And local people stood by them And together they transformed America be sure to check out our latest Spotify playlist. Dr. Hughes has curated dozens of songs that amplify even more of the ideas raised in this episode. Just follow the link in the show notes at learningforjustice.org slash podcast. Now let's return to my conversation with movement veteran, Cortland Cox. What would you say were SNCC's major accomplishments?
1: I would say, I I would say probably the following. I would say the first thing is breaking fear. Mm -hmm. And that really moves around the the freedom rides. When, uh, and I'm talking about the group really that came out of Nashville, the SNCC people who came out of Nashville, I would include John Lewis and Diane Nash and uh, Bernard Lafayette and those people who came out with uh, Jim Law, under Jim Lawson. Uh, there was that SNCC group out of there, and they were when it was clear that the people in Mississippi and Alabama and all these other places were going to use force to destroy people who came on the Freedom Rides. Uh, you know Martin King and Ro- I mean, and and Core, uh, and other people who were doing the Freedom Rides when they faced, saw that violence, they backed up and started calling off the Freedom Rides. And the SNCC people, and particularly John Lewis, Diane, and, and Bernard, decided that they were going to continue the, the rides into Mississippi, regardless of the threats of fear. And in fact, the story is told that when Bobby Kennedy sent word to to Diane Nash that these people were prepared to kill them, Diane said, yes, we know, and we've already made out our will. So, I mean, so the sense that, that the, I think the first thing was to stand up to the kind of violence and not be afraid where others were prepared to be afraid. I think the second thing in, in terms of that fear discussion is that when people were put in jail, and Bob in Mississippi in Parchment Penitentiary, and Bobby Kennedy agreed to that with the people, the governor of Mississippi, as opposed to being intimidated by being put in jail, they decided to take no bail and call for others to come to jail, and so it broke the concept of fear because you know the in any war the major objective is to destroy the enemy's will to resist. And they were prepared to destroy our will to resist. And we decided we were not going dis- to, our will was not going to be destroyed. In fact, it was going to be amplified. So I think that's the first contribution that SNCC made. The second contribution that SNCC made was voter registration and voter registration, the kind of patience it took to work in the communities, to live in the communities, to live in the same kind of threat of violence, to be able to bring resources, to be able to to, to take the patience to, to work with people, and to, to really have a long view that, you know, this was you know, we didn't. It wasn't just a demonstration. We worked in a community two, three years. I mean, before the the Selma march, we were in Selma for three years. So we understood that it took a long view and the kind of voter registration uh, ideas we brought to the conversation. I think that's the next thing we contributed. I think the third thing we contributed is the whole concept of Black Power, and 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 I think. You know, it was really important because one of the things that's really important for some, a, a community to, to be able to really stand on its own is the ability to define. And we, the, one of the things that Black Power did is that it helped Black people define themselves as good, as worthy, as people of credibility. Because before Black Power... You know, we were all trying, we were Negroes, if you call somebody black, they were ready to fight. You know, nat- we used natalona cream to blighten to, to our skin. We, we used, put concholine in our hair to burn it to make it look straight. So I think that whole concept of defining yourself, what is beautiful, what is worthy, What is of value was, you know, was something. So I think the three things that we contributed, well, I guess the way we worked, our style was to work in the community from the bottom up. But I think, you know, breaking fear, uh, the voter registration, along with the whole question of working community from the bottom up and the question of black power, the ability to find who we were and how we were to be respected. In the United States,
0: you know, when I think about those accomplishments that you identify, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that those accomplishments did not just influence the moment, but we are still very much impacted by those accomplishments today, whether we're talking about black power and black consciousness, grassroots organizing, voter registration and the like. Could you say a little bit about the importance of not just those accomplishments in the 1960s, but the legacy that SNCC left as a result of having done those interventions. What would you like young people, um, especially young activists who are just embarking upon their a lifelong struggle, much like uh, a lifelong inner struggle, much like you were, uh, as a as a youth in in, in Harlem and then at, at Howard University with Nag, what would you like them to know about SNCC?
1: You know, just before I got on this podcast, I met with a group of uh, young people, and I tell young I co- I tell people these days anybody who's not an AARP member is a young person, <laughs> <laughs> at least to me. So. There are two or three things that they need to know. The first is that they have to be present. They have to be in the communities to be relevant. You can't be on the streets just fighting, you know, the, the, the government about X, Y, and Z. That, that's good for a time. But if you want to be meaningful, you've got to be in the communities Working with them on a day to day basis. And this is not about you individually. This is about the community as a whole. And I think that, you know, getting away from the individual kinds of things and, and, and activists talking to each other as opposed to talking to the community is something I would encourage. You know, the second thing that I think that's important is that this is going to be a long-term struggle. And, and, you know, I understand just as a young person, when I was a young person, you know, I I had to believe that the energy and time I put into it was going to make all the difference in the world. And I would see the things that I wanted to advocate, you know, and I think you know, that is something that people need to understand, that they need to pace themselves and to begin to understand that this is a long range struggle. The most humbling thing that I realized, being engaged in the movement, you will do all that is necessary, but it won't be sufficient. Mm-hmm. I mean, every, even everything that every contribution you think you've made, and the contributions could be valuable and they will be valuable and they are valuable but they they, they the the issues that are, uh we face are so big that you have just made it easier for some other people to do what's necessary but you did not do what is sufficient to get what is has to be done once you begin to realize that it's important to stay engaged and stay active with a number of young people the third thing that i think needs to be said with the point that miss miss baker used to make to us all the time this struggle is for more than a hamburger i mean that's when we were talking about the sit-ins i mean and what she meant by that is that the struggle is much more than what you see in front of you uh, let's take, for example, the police. You know, the killing of the policeman or the murder of George Floyd and other things like that. You know, that is not just the, just the action of a individual, a police person. You have to ask, what is the mission of the police person? What is the infrastructure that supports that mission? And why does that infrastructure exist? And why does that mission exist? So if you want to deal with the question of police brutality, it's not only just the police. You've got to deal with the political mission. What is that supporting? What is the economic infrastructure behind that? And you've got to understand all those things in order to deal with the police violence that you see in front of you. It's more, as Ms. Baker say, it's more than a hamburger. You would have to say it's more than just a police action or a police shooting. There are a lot of things that go behind that that allow that to happen. You know, and I also think I would say to young people today, they are at a point that we could not even imagine. When we started out, given all the barriers we had, all that was really open to us was protests and those kinds of actions. We have now reached a point where, you know, young Black people and and Black people, Black community in general, you, you see that we now are a political force. We used to be a minority force. We used to be the minority force. Now we have become the majority force. So at the end of the day, we have now understood our ability to make a difference politically. Now we have to begin to think, how do we now use that political power to serve the economic interests of the black community. So we don't have black people, you know, in what they call food deserts or hungry. How are they dealing with their health issues, dealing with their housing issues? How do we now use our political power to make a difference at the state, local, and federal level? That's something we could not even imagine because they would know we didn't have any political handles to deal with it. So I think that young people have to understand what moment they're in, what power they have and what they have to do in order to serve the black community.
0: When you think about the challenges that you and your SNCC comrades faced then, what do you think about when you think about the challenges that young people as organizers face today and how do you suggest that they meet those challenges?
1: Right. The level of violence that we faced in the 1960s, not only from the state apparatus, the police, the state troopers, you know, and so forth, but vigilantes is over. Was not. I mean, it doesn't. Nothing today compares to what we had to face. I mean, when I go back and look at the watch reports. And look at the violence that, you know, every day we reported. I mean, the kind of violence we faced was like, you know, you know, you know, it, it was like, okay, today is Tuesday and these things are going to happen. But we've got to keep move for- moving forward because we cannot be paralyzed by that particular incident because the violence was not the issue. The violence was not the issue. I mean so I mean so my sense is we faced overwhelming violence uh that that today's organizers don't face. I think that we also did not have, I would say, the opportunities that the today's organizers would have, as I mentioned in terms of of the p- political sophistication and, and political offices that we hold. The other thing I would say to, to young people is that you've got to focus on the big issues in the community. People don't come into with a great, great analysis. They see something that is wrong and it bothers them. This is not fear, and they think that it, it needs to be made right. And as they begin to try to solve that problem, I think a process begins. So when I look at, you know, when I look at the people who started out with Javon Martin, you know, the, the people with mm-hmm. the dream defenders, uh, and, and people in the early Black Lives Matter movement and stuff like that, hands up, don't shoot. I mean, I begin to see that they have moved from Their initial thing, which says, response is, this is wrong, this is not fair, to understanding that they must be engaged politically and that they're dealing with some big economic issues. You know, this may be a bit controversial, but I mean, I think this is the way I feel. So we are focused on maybe the 400 people who have been shot by the police. And it has a great deal of visibility and sucks a lot of oxygen out of the room. But at the same time, 50,000 black people would die, die from COVID because they face economic situations where they're considered essential workers, but they're being forced into situations where they're likely to die, uh, forced into factories where they're likely to die. Forced into circumstances where they're likely to die. So while we lo- if we're going to look at the problems of the black mm-hmm. community, it is not just about particular individuals who are visible. It is about the the fundamental problems that we have in in our communities where we face hunger, where we we don't have the jobs, where we where we you know don't have the health care you know even right now you know uh you know and the people want to tell about the black people being scared of needles that's not what's the problem the what the problem is is there's limited amount of vaccine and when you know they put the stuff up on the computer for where you can register to get your your um your vaccinations people who have computers go ahead and do it. And my people in the black community who don't have it, can't get it. So they're not getting the vaccinations. So my sense is, I think for young people, they have to see the problem as a much bigger problem than just police violence, because the problems facing the black community are much bigger than the issues of just an individual being shot and even if you want to focus on the individual being shot you have cannot just focus on that actual incident you've got to focus on why they got shot what's the mission of the police which will get you back to the problems of the black community so i just think that i would say to them they have to think much bigger and because they have much bigger opportunities And much bigger responsibilities at this point.
0: Brother Colin Cox, thank you so much for blessing us with your time, for sharing your experiences, for your commitment to freedom for all people uh, and this lifelong journey that you have been on. I can't thank you enough. We we are forever in your debt.
1: All right. uh, Thank you.
0: This season of teaching hard history is based on the book understanding and teaching the civil rights movement recipient of the 2020 James Harvey Robinson prize for the most outstanding contribution to the teaching and learning of history from the American historical association. And this podcast is produced in partnership with the university of Wisconsin press publishers of this collection of essays, which I edited from now until the end of April. They are offering a 30% discount to listeners who order this collection. You'll find a link to purchase the book at learningforjustice.org slash podcast. Just use the promotional code CIVILRIGHTS, all one word. In 1955, the murder of Emmett Till had a profound impact on Cortland Cox and a generation of young activists who shaped the civil rights movement in the 1960s. In 2012, The shooting of Trayvon Martin sparked the engagement of young people who are now leaders in the movement for Black Lives. And in 2020, a new generation of organizers began mobilizing in the wake of George Floyd's murder. Among them was Kaya Woodford. Kaya is a second-year student at The Ohio State University. She is the president of the Bexley Anti-Racism Project in her hometown of Bexley, Ohio. And she is also a student of mine. I asked Kaya to join us for this episode to share the lessons she has learned about the black freedom struggle and how they have influenced her own activism. Kaya Woodford, it is great to have you joining us for this episode of Teaching Hard History. Welcome.
5: Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here with you.
0: So tell me about Bexley, Ohio, which is a suburb of Columbus. That's your hometown. You grew up there, correct?
5: Yes, I um, am a product of the Bexley school system and graduated from Bexley High School in 2019.
0: What is Bexley like? What's the demographics?
5: There is an approximate 7% population of black community residents relative to an 89% population of white community residents. So there's definitely a huge racial discrepancy Growing up there was, it was an experience like no other, being black. I was a high-performing student, so I was placed into advanced placement courses, AP classes, and I found that I was typically the only black student in the room, so I felt a burden to perform to the height of academic perfection in order to positively reflect on my respective community. Since I was the point of entry for a lot of white students in regard to their engagement with black members of their community.
0: What was it about that moment following the killing of George Floyd that led you to want to join the demonstrations?
5: I remember I was actually on a trip with my best friend and she's white and everyone on the trip was white, too. So the news broke and we were driving home from Massachusetts together and I remember silence I remember a lot of avoidance of the issue lack of confrontation and I it just didn't sit right with me. I felt like we needed to have an honest conversation about this tragedy open dialogue. That's central to your teaching style and all of your courses. And I just took so much away from that, having honest discussions, using explicit terminology to describe the injustice that we were learning about. And so in that moment on the ride home, it was like multiple hours. So I had a lot of time to sit with myself and think about the weight that I felt in response to this injustice. I began demonstrating in local protests downtown at the State House. It was unlike anything I'd ever seen before. I've grown up in Columbus my whole life. I'd been in that place so many times, and it felt foreign to me. It was dark, there was tear gas my eyes, really like burning, we were running, people were screaming. It was just a state of destruction. But I mean, ultimately that exemplifies the current state of our reality, it's just broken. Demonstrating downtown at the State House, I started to speak up on behalf of my community and my personal experience as his death impacted me as a black person and what it said about police brutality and just the system of injustice in our country. I can- was disseminated across my community through, like, um, I think it was just a recording on an iPhone that was spread about the community. It reached the hands of graduates of the class of 2017 from Bexley High School. They came to the conclusion that Bexley needed a change and reached out to me and said, we saw your video. We would like to partner with you and found an organization in Bexley. So, together we founded the Bexley Anti Racism Project and we looped in a number of students of color from Bexley. And now we are running this organization and we have an official high school club that operates within the Bexley High School now. The Bexley Anti Racism Project is a student led organization dedicated to actively combating racial inequality through education, mobilization, and the amplification of Black student voices to create. A support system for black students in the Bexley community as well as to be a resource for students across the nation.
0: What were some of the goals of the Bexley Anti-Racism Project?
5: So we actually met with the superintendent and director of community engagement and a couple members of the school board in July and we presented them a letter which included our written demands and changes we wish to see from school administration and they included more diverse hires so that students of color would be taught by educators of color because that's so important to see minorities in positions of authority. Other demands were to create anti-racist or equity policy which we're in the process of doing now and to be included in decision-making processes with the school, just to be respected as a voice because Bexley is predominantly white and students of color are largely ignored and their concerns are neglected. Also encouraging students to enroll in advanced courses. I think another issue with Bexley isn't necessarily the fact that there is a lack of diversity Alone, it's the fact that our diverse student populations aren't encouraged to perform to the same academic standard as white students, and they don't receive the same support and resources as well. And we also advocated for the reevaluation of our curriculum to be more comprehensive and include African American studies as well, and also to conduct an equity audit to provide data to inform our policy. And also to standardize disciplinary measures so that students of color weren't impacted disproportionately on account of their race. So just a number of different things all to support black students in the district.
0: Yeah, I love the specifics of it. I and mean, obviously people were mobilizing around the call for justice for the victims of police violence. But there's still so many other issues on the table that needed to be addressed. And clearly, you and your comrades had a good sense of what needed to be done to pave a way for those coming up behind you to be more successful in the classroom themselves. Let me ask you, Kyle. So when you were in my class, was there anything in there that you thought about, reflected on as you were beginning your activist journey?
5: Definitely. You introduced me to so many figures that I now Almost idolized, they just serve as role models for me in the work that I do now, like Ella Baker.
0: Shout out to Ella Baker.
5: (laughs) I just am amazed by her work and also just the modesty she has. There's a quote from her. She says, I have always thought that what is needed is the development of people who are interested not in being leaders as much as in developing leadership in others. That has been a guiding force in the way I function through the Bexley Anti-Racism Project. It's definitely a collaborative, collective community organization, and we empower our student members to speak their truth to power. With the demands that we presented to the administration of the school, we substantiated them with lived experience of students of our project, as well as academic research. In approaching conversation and meeting with people in positions of authority, We found it best to identify ourselves as the experts because we are. We are the ones with the firsthand experience of being a Black student walking the halls of a school that is predominantly white and currently failing its Black student population. It's dismantling the power dynamic because those individuals don't have that same understanding. Oftentimes they are white and sometimes they're male, But as a black woman, I have a unique individualized experience and perception of the world around me, and it's valuable to them since they're in the position of enacting that change structurally.
6: Let me ask
0: you something, Kaya. How did being a black woman shape your experience as an activist?
5: I was definitely reminded of the fact that our culture is pretty sexist still all of the founders of the organization are female in communication with media outlets. It was assumed that one of our members of our organization was one of the founders because he's a guy and lots of interview requests on that basis, which is really interesting how people externally power map and assume males to be in positions of authority. It was also empowering to a certain degree because I feel like oftentimes women of color aren't really heard and providing a platform for myself for other students other female students of color to again speak their truth to power was empowering for me because i could identify with so many of the stories that they were telling and it's just so important for them to voice their experience and allow that to resonate with people who don't share that experience And hopefully we have been able to change the hearts and minds of some of those who have been following our project.
0: What's the value of learning about the civil rights movement in the classroom?
5: Learning about the civil rights movement provides students the opportunity to have a dialogue that's on the basis of factual information. In other discussions I have regarding civil rights, there are many uninformed opinions You presented us with the facts, this is the history, and then we debated or we discussed different points, but at the root of it was the factual basis. And I think when you get away from that, you perpetuate misinformation that can be really damaging to progress and understanding our nation's history as well. So I feel like informing me about the past allows me to better perceive, more aptly perceive current happenings. Growing up in Bexley, the default is white history, so I learned about white people. I would learn about European history. Enrolling in your Civil Rights and Black Power Movement course at Ohio State it was really my point of entry with African-American history, and I just realized there was so much that I didn't know and so much I was excited to learn about. And I can't believe I wasn't taught about the Black Power Movement when I was in high school. And... How the government intervened to destroy that movement, how the white authoritative power structure in this country actively works to combat any type of resistance from a people who deserve to resist a system and structure that was implemented to oppress them. Also, just understanding how this country was founded, the labor force that enabled mass production. I just wasn't taught that. It's not only that I wasn't taught, it was the frame that I was taught this content in. It's from the perspective of the white man, but I'm not a white man, so I don't fit into that narrative and don't identify with that narrative. I'm a product of the slave. And the fact that that's one unit in AP United States history is disheartening because the implications of slavery are present now and have shaped our entire country, and all of its institutions. I think we're doing a great disservice to the legacy in lives of those people by not teaching them in proportion to the extent they shape how we engage in day-to-day life.
0: So Dr. Martin Luther King's last book is entitled, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community? So let me ask you King's question. One, where do we go from here? as a nation and then also where does kaya woodford go from here
5: part of me believes that we have to take a radical approach and dismantle the system entirely and rebuild it on the premise that everyone in this country is equal and is American on the basis of their being American and doesn't have anything to do with their race but also the realist in me understands that I don't know how to go about an undertaking like that when we have 70 million people who voted for Donald Trump. I mean, how do you overcome that discrepancy in radical belief? I mean, we have extremists walking among us and in positions of authority. It's hard for me to conceptualize a radical transformation of the state, but I believe that's necessary in order to establish an equal system of justice. In the meantime, I think educating comprehensively and inclusively in regard to the true founding of our nation and genocide and racism, how that has influenced present-day institutions and practices, I think that's a start. Once we educate everyone in that way, it will be easier to undertake a radical response and hopefully revolutionize our state of affairs. Personally, I am studying political science and African-American African studies. I intend to go to law school. I don't know what type of law I want to practice, but hopefully be an advocate on behalf of members of my community experiencing discrimination on the basis of their race I think that would be a really cool profession to go into and a way to hopefully impact people in a positive way that's in line with my passion
0: thank you Kiowa It's great talking to you and uh, keep up the great work proud of you thank you Hey, everybody, we've cooked up something new. Educators can now earn a certificate issued by Learning for Justice for one hour of professional development just by listening to this episode. All you have to do is go to learningforjustice.org slash podcast PD, PD for professional development. That's podcast PD, all one word. Then enter the special code word for this episode, ACTION all lowercase. You'll also find a link in the show notes. The SNCC Digital Gateway is a documentary website that tells the story of SNCC. It was created in close consultation with SNCC veterans and offers a wealth of online resources for teachers and students. We asked historian Carlin Forner, who was the project manager, and archivist John B. Gartrell, to take us on a tour of its many resources. Here are Carlin and John.
7: Hi, I'm Carlin Forner.
6: Hey, I'm John Gartrell.
7: The Snick Digital Gateway is told from the perspective of the movement veterans themselves. They were involved in every aspect of the site in terms of shaping the structure all the way down to who is going to be profiled and what those profiles look like.
6: Snick Digital Gateway is a documentary website that seeks to tell the story of the civil rights movement through the lens of the student nonviolent coordinating committee.
7: It's really engaging in civil rights history from the people who were on the ground doing the organizing.
6: So we want to sort of walk you through the different sections, what you're going to find there. When you come to the site, the very first thing on the menu is the people section, where you can view profiles of some of the critical people to SNCC and the SNCC story. You will see it organized with categories of snake staff, local people, mentors, and allies, but you'll also see geographical designations for people. So you can see people who are influential in Alabama, Arkansas, and you'll also be able to see a full list of SNCC staff and volunteers from the Mississippi Freedom Summer of 1964.
7: You can just go ahead and click on any of the profiles and you're going to get a story about who that person was to the movement and links to related content on the site. You'll also see on the right-hand side of the page, there's a red sidebar in the profiles that also include links to other primary sources that tell you more about this person. Like if we go to Fannie Lou Hamer's profile There's an interview with Fannie Lou Hamer from 1965 from the KZSU Project South interviews at Stanford. There is an interview with Ms. Hamer from the University of Southern Mississippi. There's a number of primary documents that are located at places like the Wisconsin Historical Society. And then at the bottom of each of the pages for the profile, there's a sources section. That includes sources that were used in writing the profile, but also related sources. So you can really use the sources as a jumping off point for further resources. Let's turn to the timeline section next. John, would you be up for giving us a sense of the structure and what you can find in the timeline section?
6: Yeah, absolutely. The timeline is really designed to give visitors to the site a sense of how the movement flowed for SNCC and SNCC's activism. And a great place to start would be April 1960 at the founding of SNCC. On the left-hand side, you're going to see the essay about what took place at the founding meeting. And on the right-hand side of the page, you're going to see a carousel of primary sources. There's an embedded link of an interview with Charles or Chuck McDew. Who was a student and protest leader at South Carolina State? And he's reflecting on the founding meeting in an oral history that was done by the Library of Congress. There is the call for youth leadership broadside that was put out to advertise this meeting that ultimately became the founding meeting for SNCC. So you can view that document. This was the actual document that led young leaders to come to Shaw University and really have a discussion about a new generation of leadership of activism that would essentially dominate an entire decade in our country's history and really globally. This document reflects the spark of youth activism in the 1960s. And when you put it in that context... That document and the hundreds of other documents on the State Digital Gateway are really, really powerful and help shape students and researchers' understanding of how the movement unfolded.
5: Let's
7: go to the map section.
6: Yeah, so the great thing about the map, it adds a little bit of a visual flair to a lot of the written content on the website, right? If you click on the map link from the home page, you're going to jump right into a map of the United States. There's going to be these little markers, just like if you were using like a Google Map and you were dropping in a pin for a location. But if you were to click on that Macomb, Mississippi pin on the map, that's going to take you to a description of what Macomb's place in the movement was and how SNCC. Was activated in that particular place. And then you're going to see the people and events that are also linked throughout the website that are affiliated with that place. One of the things that we really learned as we were pulling the site together from the Snake veterans was that the movement in Macomb looks very different from the movement in, say, Lowndes County, Alabama, right? They applied different organizing approaches. Based on the place that they were embedded and clicking on each of those pins and digging into the story of the people and events that unfolded in those places will give you a little bit more insight on how the movement is different in those different places, even though it's all SNCC.
7: One of my most favorite sections on the site is the inside SNCC section, which is a whole section about how the organizers organized when we were working with the movement veterans. They didn't just want to tell the stories of the people in the movement and the events of what happened. They wanted to get at the thinking and then also the structure that let the organizers organize
6: one of my favorite parts of this section is the SNCC culture section. You'll actually see clips of SNCC veterans talking about what SNCC culture was.
7: I can still go back to these and crack up. They are just hilarious. There's this Ivan Donaldson one that's called A Car Ride and $25. Let's listen to that one.
8: You know, SNCC was one of these organizations that I guess sort of assumed anybody could do anything i was in atlanta you know i don't even know if i was old enough to vote and foreman told me well you need to go to louisville and help out up there and i just dropped off some books at miles college and came over to atlanta was figuring out what my next mission was going to be i would never been to louisville in fact i don't think i've ever been to kentucky except to pick up things in louisville to take south you know to clarksdale but reggie robinson and bob Zellner drove me up to louisville kentucky and I'd seen her before in Atlanta, but I met Ann Braden and Carl Braden. I stayed in their home and we proceeded. I think SNCC gave me like $25 and said, Go forth and organize a movement. And, you know, it was just the way things work. You know, I got a car ride and $25. Ann gave me home, fed me, and, you know, the rest was just history. So, we
7: so the down. SNCC culture section has all of these clips. That are like that. It's
6: hilarious.
7: Ivanhoe Donaldson is telling that story, but that's not just his story. Other SNCC folks have stories just like that. And so in this section, you really get a sense of kind of the style and the flavor of SNCC and how the Snick folks interacted with each other and moved throughout the world.
6: Yeah. And you know what? I'm always struck by how matter of fact they are about things that I think from our perspective in the 21st century, we go, how in the world did you all do this? And they're like, oh well, like you know, they just gave me 25 dollars, and I, I decided to change the world. Like it, it doesn't, they don't really think much about you know themselves, right, in that context. But their voices and their experiences in these clips is really special, especially when you're an educator or you're working with young students. The snake folks believe and preach that young people today have as much capacity as they did when they were young in the 60s to change the world. You can learn from these stories that are shared by these snake veterans. They didn't view themselves as superheroes or aberrations of humanity. They were just people who saw a wrong in the world and wanted to help and wanted to change. And I think that's one of the great things that you get out of the SNCC culture.
7: Mm-hmm. And I think in working with the SNCC veterans on this website, certainly one of my takeaways is that the SNCC folks, they approach things with humor. They're serious and they get <laughs> yeah, things absolutely. done. Like There's not another group of people who can get things done as well as the SNCC folks, but they have a good time when they're doing it. And that really comes absolutely. out in the section of the website.
6: Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a perfect way to talk about the Our Voices section, right?
7: Mm-hmm. We brought together small groups of activists who worked together either in a particular location or were connected via a certain theme in the movement. And we brought those folks together in Durham for a couple days of recording conversations amongst themselves. And SNCC veteran Charlie Cobb was the facilitator for these conversations, you know, at the heart of it is the SNCC veterans talking about their organizing and their work with their peers and from their own perspective. These are very different than oral history interviews. It's Mm -hmm. really like a, a back and forth that happens here. And there's so much knowledge that comes out of that exchange between peers and SNCC.
0: This is Teaching Hard History, and I'm your host, Hassan Kwame Jeffries. To continue making this podcast a valuable resource, we need your input. You can help us by taking a few minutes to complete our brief listener survey. Just click on the link in the show notes or visit LearningForJustice.org/slash podcast. It's only 10 questions, and your feedback will help us make each episode even more impactful for educators just like you. Now let's learn more about the SNCC Digital Gateway with Carlin Forner and John Gartrell.
6: One of the sections that I really enjoy under our voices is the Black Panther section. It's a conversation that's broken up into five different parts. And that conversation takes place between Jennifer Lawson, Cortland Cox, and facilitated by Charlie Cobb, helping users to understand the development of the Lowndes County Freedom Party in Lowes County, Alabama.
7: In order to reach out to folks in the community and help people understand the role of these county positions, like the sheriff and the tax collector and members of the Board of Education, the SNCC folks, including Jennifer Lawson and Cortland, created comic books that they gave to people in the county to help people understand what these roles were. So you can look at the comic books that SNCC created.
6: There's a comic on the sheriff, Mr. Sidney Logan, and if he was to be elected, what are some of the things that are in his power? The sheriff keeps peace uh, in the county, right, and that's his responsibility. He can suppress riots, uh, and so there's the, this sort of a different image of a black sheriff. If he's elected, uh, he can stop a group of white men who are wielding guns. Who might uh, cause harm or danger to a black community? Uh, he can suppress unlawful assemblies, and here again is the black figure, the the, the black sheriff holding a gun uh, standing in front of a, a group of hooded clansmen with a burning cross in the background uh, and he can also uh, have a posse so he can ask other black men in the community, you know, it says, I need five men, and, and they respond, "He, we will help, right? So just that visual aid of how power can be flipped on its head when there's a black sheriff versus a white sheriff, that now he has the power to, as a black man, to suppress the riots of white gun-wielding uh, members of the community, or can drive away uh, the Ku Klux Klan who Uh, we know has a a fraught history of violence amongst uh, the black community. Uh, This graphic, this comic that was put together by Jennifer and Cortland uh, as an organizing tool to get the folks in the community in Lowndes County to really uh, marry this idea of what black power really looks like uh, is really, really important and one of the gems on the SNCC Digital Gateway.
7: You have parts like that, like the Black Panther section, Um, but you also have sections like song and music in the movement. John, do you want to talk about that section at all?
6: Man, this section was amazing to pull together. It's curated parts of conversations about how they use music as a tool for organizing. We had conversations, uh, Privately, but then we had a public event at North Carolina Central University where the panelists were talking about how influential the songs were on their activism. And so, this particular clip from Betty Mae Fikes, where she talks about the meaning of this little light of mine, really gives you an insight on her story.
9: And to get ourselves ready to go to jail. Have you ever prepared yourself to go to jail? We even prepared ourselves to die for mankind. And to get hyped up in the basement of First Baptist Church, they were hollering, I'm sure you have heard it many, many times. What you want, you haven't heard it, freedom used to scream 15, 16, 17, 18, 19-year-old students from R.B. Hudson High School. And would scream out what you want. Freedom. Thank you. They don't know yet. (laughs) You're still looking for freedom. What you want. Freedom. What you want.
4: Freedom.
9: And when you want it. Now.
6: Can almost feel yourself transposed, right? Into oh, it's the so movement good in that clip. I mean, it was I was watching it last night, and I was just like, This was amazing. And I was there that night, right? But mm-hmm. every time I hear it, it's it's just it's so powerful, right? And then you know, her voice is obviously tremendous. Um, but she really gives you a sense of, like she said, they had to sing to prepare to go to jail. And if you're going to go into a war, right, against racism or oppression, having that song in your heart as a weapon, as an organizing tool, was something that was critical to the movement. So I think one of the legacies of Snake is reflected in The movement today. There are young people who view themselves as the scion of Snake. And the Snake veterans wanted to give space to the voices of young activists today. That is what the Today section of the site is all about. When you click on the Today section, what you'll find are videos of young people answering questions. One is, and Carly, you could talk a little bit more about this, which strategies and tactics are relevant today?
4: Mm -hmm.
7: Yeah, the questions were questions that the SNCC veterans thought were enduring questions in the movement. They were interested in making these questions relevant to this current moment. And there are questions that SNCC folks asked of themselves. So the framing of this entire section is around questions that are enduring movement questions, whether, you know, this is in the 1960s or that movement for Black Lives is facing right now. Some of the pieces in the Today section bring together just a really diverse range of people, like one in the which strategies and tactics are relevant today. There's a piece called Listen to the People, and this includes Derek Johnson, who's the head of the NAACP. There's Phil Agnew, who is with Dream Defenders. And then there's Zohara Simmons, who is a SNCC activist.
8: Four things, and I know y'all know the joy of knocking on doors. Right, that's, for me, look, for me, that's one of the most, we call it K-O-D. If y'all know, in in Miami, that has a special. Um, So we call it K-O-D, knocking on doors. (laughs) And and it's one of the most amazing, it's one of the most amazing, amazing uh, experiences. And let me tell you why. Let me tell you why it's so important. My pen
10: is the fire, my mouth is the fumes, the spark of revolution. Through education and dedication, we can save our black
1: schools. Local people are at the center of our work. Shokwe Mumba. you don't love the people, you can't lead the people. Organizational identity is irrelevant in local communities because local communities define what's in their best interest. It is our role to work through that to support their work for the outcomes they seek.
10: We thought the first thing we had to do was to begin building a sense of community. We held cookouts outdoors when weather permitted. We blasted rock and roll music, jazz, blues. Uh, People would dance and mingle. Uh, We would intersperse the music with consciousness raising. Heavy doses of black history. We saw that that really was an important part of sort of waking people up. Uh, We had voter registration tables at all of these gatherings with literature and talked about the importance of voting. But changing the conditions that they were faced
8: with. Um, This is an intentional uh, uh, process of listening to each of the communities that we're a part of. Um, We'll be doing the basic organizing things. Nothing revolutionary but canvassing, mapping local terrain, hosting local community ciphers that we're going to build with community squads to build our base and prepare for our future campaign work. So uh, an underlying point, the elephant in the room, is that I'm not presenting our campaign work that's going to emanate from a process over the next 6 months of developing that with the communities that we're working in. We also had
1: to build a program of work. How we came up with those five primary areas, we did a listening tour of local people to find out what were the things that you all what they were concerned with and is that that is what informed our strategy. These things are, are operable all the
10: time. Listen to the people Love the people. Be open to constructive criticism. Uh, remain flexible and open to course
8: corrections in your work towards your goals. Uh, last year we told everybody. Uh, last year we told everybody to boycott Black Friday, right? And this was one of the learnings that really got us to a place where we had to reevaluate ourselves individually and organizationally. And so everybody was saying, boycott Black Friday. So I was talking to one of my homeboys. So I said, the the, the brother said, look, man, why y'all telling people to boycott Black Friday? I said, listen, man, the corporations are running this country. Walmart don't love you. Macy's don't love you. So don't go to, don't, don't spend your money with these organizations. He said, I feel that. I feel that, bro. Y'all, yeah, that makes sense. Walmart don't love me. He said, so y'all going to tell me that I, I got to buy the game. I got to buy the, the toys. This is non-negotiable. My brother, I got to do it. So you're going to tell me to not go to the store on the cheapest day of the year. Knowing I got to go, I'm a, I got to go a week later. So that's not a boycott to me. That's, a, that's like an embargo because in a week, I'm gonna spend more money for that TV. So why don't you tell everybody to shop on the cheapest day of the year? That'll, lose, that'll make them lose some money. I tell that story just to say, it, it re, really regrounds even the campaigns that we do, the things that we ask. And obviously we gotta get this brother greater political education to say, you don't gotta buy the TV. But but, but that, that's an example of the conversations that we're able to have. And I know everyone in here has stories, but I'm happy to have a story like that. Because a year ago, When we was doing all of that other bull, and I've been talking to y'all about it, and and traveling around and doing the things that aren't real, um, I didn't have those stories to fuel me.
7: So one thing that I love about that clip is that these three folks are coming from very different places. Derek Johnson organizing with the NAACP in Mississippi, and Phil Agnew organizing with Dream Defenders based out of Miami, and then Zohara Simmons talking about organizing in SNCC, which he was organizing in Mississippi and Atlanta. And so, all of them are coming from very different experiences, but there's this through line that they're talking about in different ways about how they listen to the people and how that shaped their organizing and reflecting on how their organizing grew out of what they learned from listening to the people and how that's just a through line in the movement work.
6: What I would say to any educator who is considering the Snake Digital Gateway as a source is simply that our civil rights education needs a refresh. And I think the State Digital Gateway presents a more than viable option for that refresh. If you feel your students are in need of hearing, reading, understanding the voices of everyday people, they might not see themselves with the possibilities of, say, a Martin Luther King, but I can guarantee you that they can see themselves in Fanlou Lou Hamer, or they can see themselves in a Charlie Cobb. It's relevant not just for the past, but for contextualizing what's going on today And we encourage you as the listener to visit snakedigital.org, and hopefully you'll find yourself returning again and again and again. John B. Gartrell is the director of the John
0: Hope Franklin Research Center for African and African-American History and Culture in the David M. Rubenstein Rare Book and Manuscript Library at Duke University. Dr. Carlin Forner, is the former project manager of the SNCC Digital Gateway. She is also the author of Why the Vote Wasn't Enough for Selma. Kaya Woodford is a political science major and African American and African Studies minor at The Ohio State University. She is a moral scholar who serves on the executive board of the Politics, Society, and Law Scholars Program. Ms. Woodford is the president and co-founder of the Bexley, Ohio Anti-Racism Project. Cortland Cox is a SNCC veteran and the chairperson of the SNCC Legacy Project which is conducting intra and intergenerational sessions to document the last 10 years of grassroots youth activism and to strategize about the future. This summer the SNCC Legacy Project will be holding trainings for secondary teachers and later this year they plan on a virtual celebration of SNCC's 60th anniversary which had to be canceled last year. Teaching Hard History is a podcast from Learning for Justice, a project of the Southern Poverty Law Center, helping teachers and schools prepare students to be active participants in a diverse democracy. Learning for Justice provides free teaching materials about slavery and the civil rights movement that include award-winning films and classroom-ready texts. You can find these online at learningforjustice.org. Most students leave high school without an understanding of the civil rights movement and its continuing relevance. This podcast is part of an effort to change that. We began by talking about slavery for two seasons, and now we're tracing the legacy of oppression and resistance into the present. Thanks to Mr. Cox, Ms. Woodford, Dr. Forner, and Dr. Gartrell for sharing their insights with us. This podcast was produced by Mary Quintus and senior producer Shea Shackelford. Russell Gregg is our associate producer. Movement music is produced by Barrett Golding and Gabriel Smith provides content guidance. Amelia Gregg is our intern. Our managing producer is Miranda LaFond and Kate Schuster is our executive producer. Our theme song is The Colors That You Bring by Damon Locke's Black Monument Ensemble who graciously let us use it for this series. Additional music is from their album where future unfolds. And from Wendell Patrick's JDWP tribute. If you like what you've heard, please share it with your friends and colleagues and let us know what you think. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We always appreciate your feedback. I'm Dr. Hassan Kwame Jeffries, Associate Professor of History at The Ohio State University and your host for Teaching Hard
4: History.